Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, we're discussing climate change and COP26, but also the enormous social and political challenge of the energy transition. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading review of culture and ideas. And the LRB is returning to first principles with their latest exclusive offer for Talking Politics listeners. Get 12 issues of the magazine for just £12 and they'll also send you one of their surprisingly famous tote bags, acclaimed by the likes of New York Magazine and Vice. Just use the URL mylrb.co.uk slash talkingbag. That's mylrb.co.uk slash talking bag. This is a conversation that Helen and I recorded with Jason Bordoff. Jason is at COP26. He is the co-founder of the Columbia Climate School. But before that, he was a special assistant to Barack Obama on energy and climate change. And he's held a series of senior policy positions across three White House administrations. He was rushing between meetings at COP26, so we caught him on the run. There's a little bit of interference on the line with some of this conversation. Please stick with it. It's really interesting. We started by talking about what his takeaway has been so far from what's happening in Glasgow. I think the news here in Glasgow is uh good, but we still have a long way to go. It's uh, There has been world leaders coming together, uh, significant levels of ambition. The United States is back in the game. That's a big change. Uh, we saw some meaningful commitments on issues like methane that can make a huge dent in near-term warming, uh, commitments from India. Um, but we're still short of where we need to be. The combined pledges don't put us on a pathway for 1.5 degrees. That assumes that all the people, all the pledges and promises that are being made here are fulfilled. And history would suggest some reason to be skeptical about that. And not every nation has stepped up their level of ambition, China being uh, one of those. The U.S. has, but the U.S.'s own political uh, system is, uh, is causing some problems in Washington. So we need to make sure that the U.S. can fulfill its uh, commitments to reduce emissions uh, at least 50% by 2030. I think the other part of what's happening in Glasgow that's quite consequential is not the public sector, but the private sector. And the you know we know that somewhere in the order of $100 trillion between now and 2050 is needed. We have additional investment in the energy infrastructure because clean energy tends to be more capital intensive, lower operating costs in the long term. When you build solar and wind, you don't have the fuel and commodity prices uh, costs, but you, you have to put the capital up front to build that kind of infrastructure. So we need a lot more capital coming into the, uh, the energy system. And you do see some pretty significant commitments being made. Again, the question is whether those pledges and commitments will be met by action. Uh, but the announcement about uh, private capital being mobilized for this that Mark Carney has put together and just individual corporate and financial institution commitments, I think, are significant. I just think in order for those to be viable in the long term, they have to be economic. They have to make sense from uh, a financial uh, standpoint uh, in terms of the returns to shareholders. And that requires policy to follow along. Can I just ask you on this, um, Jason, which do you think is the, the most important part of this? Is it about the the private sector and investment capital and the 
the huge sums of money that are required in order to to um, make these targets um, give them any chance of being um, realizable if that works if the if the commitment of the private sector and the understanding of the scale of the investment that's required is understood is that in the end in your mind more important than what's going on either in the domestic politics of the United States or in Xi Jinping's absence um, from the, the, the conference and the, the, U, the US-China conflicts around who's to blame um, for the success or not of this conference? Um, I think it's, it's very important, the private sector understanding of the scale of capital reallocation that's needed. It is necessary, but not sufficient, uh, because it does, it does need to be supported by policy to get as far as we need uh, it to go. So there, it's important that we have increasing social pressures on financial institutions and others to move capital in cleaner directions. It's important that there are increasing signals from consumers, that that's what they expect of businesses that, that, that they do business with, that they buy products from, especially among the younger demographics. You see a real commitment to that in terms of sustainability. But it also has to make economic sense. And so, you know, one example would be the social, significant social pressures that caused many financial institutions to pull back, say, from financing oil and gas around the world uh, over the last decade. Um, That was made easier in some sense by the fact that the oil and gas industry performed terribly from a financial standpoint. But with oil prices at 80, 90, $100, the potential for large returns, shareholder returns from some of those companies is gonna be higher, maybe in the next several years than it was in the past. So the question is gonna be, can large financial institutions forego those returns and tell the people whose money they manage, like pension funds and others, have to get you a little bit less of a return, maybe, because we don't want to participate in that part of the economy. I think it's going to play, it's going to be interesting to see what, whether that can be uh, sustained. And then in the long term, there are many aspects of the clean energy economy today that just make good financial sense. Solar and wind in many places are cheaper than coal and gas, even without subsidies in some places. But that's, you know, electricity is only 20% of final energy consumption around the world. We need to decarbonize lots of things that uh, are not electric yet. Some of them we can electrify, but, you know, some are harder to electrify, uh, like how we make steel and cement or fly airplanes. Those things are just much more expensive today, many, many times more expensive to make steel without CO2 than, than with or to fly an airplane without CO2 than with you're not going to see huge amounts of private capital come into that unless uh, that starts to change. And that uh, requires policy to put a price on carbon, to invest in early stage R&D, to drive the cost of technology down. The same way government support 10, 15 plus years ago or longer helped to bring about the decline of 90 plus percent that we saw in solar costs and battery costs, almost as much in, in wind costs over the last decade. That's what makes that economic today, because it was supported by policy many years ago, including industrial policy, including countries like China saying we want to own and dominate these industries because we know there's really good, it's not just sustainability, but this is a good economic opportunity uh, for us as a country. Um, I think that increasing competitiveness, concerns about supply chains, all of that will be part of the motivation for nations to invest in some of these emerging technologies as well. You've talked in the past about the clash between what you call climate ambition and energy reality. Can you just say a bit more about, and you've touched on it just in what you said there, what you understand by the energy reality here? I mean, part of it is about economic cost. Part of it is also just about how embedded some of these structures are in the the way we live. Do you think 
at COP or in what you're seeing in, in government action over recent months. Do you see a sign of that gap closing? Is is the energy reality and the climate ambition coming closer together or is it getting wider apart? Well, right now, I fear that it's getting wider apart because the ambition, fortunately, is being elevated. Mm. Uh, but the more the ambition is elevated, the more the gap widens unless the re- reality starts to change as fast or faster. And the reality is oil use is going up each year. Gas use is going up each year. Coal is going up now. Maybe it's going to plateau. It's not falling off a cliff. Um, and that is just how hard the math of decarbonization is. You know, if you think about the fact that the global, I mean, energy use historically is tied to CO2 emissions. And of course, energy use is also tied to GDP growth and population growth. And that's why you could see such tremendous growth in clean energy and solar and wind and batteries and electric vehicles over the last decade. And yet fossil fuel use went up each and every year, except in a global pandemic when we shut down half the global economy. So we just need that reality to change uh, much more quickly. And the math is unforgiving. I mean, you can take expectations of how much electric vehicle sales around the world, which are about 4% today, will grow, scale those up to higher numbers like 30 or 40%, and oil demand is not much lower in a decade from now than it is today. Uh, because only about 20 25% of oil is used for cars. Most of it's used for other things. Also because it takes 10, 15 years for the vehicle stock to turn over. So all of this is hard and all of this takes time. The problem is we don't have time. Uh, so that requires much, uh, much more dramatic action. And, you know, the pandemic should be a sobering reminder. We shut down at one point half the global economy. Some four, four plus billion people were on economic lockdown and global carbon emissions last year fell 6%. We need them to fall more than that each and every year for the next decade to be on track with 1.5 degrees. That should be sobering <laughs> and, and remind us how much work we still have to do. It, it is sobering. Just before I bring Helen in, if the gap is widening so that the ambition, the, the rhetoric is getting stronger, but the reality isn't shifting, at some point, people are going to notice. I mean, the politics of this is probably going to get quite quickly, quite a lot more contentious in, in lots of different ways. If it's the case that politicians and others are speaking a language that doesn't connect to the underlying energy reality, as you call it. So over this decade, it, it must be likely at least that some of the politics is going to focus on that gap. Is that how you see it? I mean, do you think that, that there is a, and it could be galvanizing it or it could be paralyzing that gap. It could go either way. But there doesn't seem to be a huge amount of attention on that gap yet. The focus is on the climate ambition. But at some point, we have to focus on the gap. I agree completely. And I think that is the question for the next uh, decade or so. Um, how does the ambition reality gap for climate action reach a breaking point? Because you're right, it has to. We wake up X number of years from now and realize we've had all this ambition for 1.5, then the bar has changed. Remember, we were talking about two degrees warming not long ago. Now we're talking about 1.5, driven by the science. There's a reason we're doing that. So the ambition is is being elevated, right, rightly in my view. Um, but if the energy system continues to uh, change at a much slower pace, you kind of look around and you realize we're nowhere close to being on track for these targets. And then one of one of two things has to give, either the ambition gives or the reality gives. So you either think many years from now, the world is going to suddenly look around and say, you know what, we thought we could get to 1.5, but it turns out to be a lot harder than we thought. We didn't realize how complicated this was. 
Um, so we're just going to have to be okay with two, two and a half degrees warming. I think as we see increasingly severe impacts from climate change today, not just decades from now, the, the daily reminders or near daily reminders or increasingly frequent reminders of storms and floods and droughts and the significant harm that is going to be created by climate change, uh, as well as the shifting views of the public uh, in different and different countries, different on different sides of the aisle. But the general trend is to be increasingly concerned about this, particularly for younger uh, constituents, younger voters. I find it hard to believe the ambition is going to suddenly diminish. I think if, if anything, the ambition is just going to move in, in the direction where we need to be uh, dealing with this sooner rather than later. And that means the reality has to change. And that's going to require uh, some more drastic actions. That is going to require a more, more disruptive, potentially, policy ideas to emerge on the table. Uh, where you have not just carbon prices, but you start to see countries around the world or cities around the world maybe, you know, banning the internal combustion engine by a certain date. Certain steps today that may seem more extreme are going to increasingly be talked about as on the table because the reality is going to have to change or, or not. To your point, it might be the case, and you see this in Europe today, of course, with the energy crisis, when people's energy bills are going up, when they're worried about whether they can afford heat in their home, uh, Maybe me saying, you know, climate change is, I'm worried about climate change, but I'm a lot more worried about the bills that I pay. And I'm a lot more worried about whether I can affordably fill up my car with gasoline or petrol, depending on, on where you live. And, and that also, there's good reason to believe that might be true, right? When the colonial pipeline went down in the United States, climate change didn't matter. We just had to figure out how to get the oil supply back online. So gas stations had gasoline. To the extent affordability, reliability, security of energy supply comes into tension with climate ambition, I worry climate ambition will lose. And that's why we need to take as many steps as we can today to de-risk the energy transition, to smooth that process moving forward. So it's not volatile. It doesn't lead to uh, reliability problems or, or, or energy price spikes, because that really risks undermining public support for the transition. But isn't the, the, the hardest reality, if you like, of this, um, Jason, is, is that in the, in the present, in this immediate moment in time is it isn't possible uh, for the same volume of energy to be supplied um, without using fossil fuels to pretty much the degree that they are um, being um, used. So if we start from the, the premise that we do need, as you say, to reduce emissions over the next year by more than we did during the year of 2020, isn't the only logical possibility that demand has to give? that actually that there has to be, over the next decade, reduced energy consumption. Now, the politics of that are incredibly difficult. I'm not trying to minimise that um, for a moment. But if the energy realities about supply can't change very rapidly, then we are left needing to live in a world, if we're being serious about climate, where we need to reduce energy consumption. Well, there is a major role for energy efficiency to play in meeting our climate goals. We're not doing nearly enough on this front. And the International Energy Agency, in its roadmap to achieve net zero by 2050, makes clear how important a role energy efficiency can play, needs to play, in tackling climate change. It's one of the key tools that we, we have to, uh, to meet energy service demand with, with lower energy use. But we also are going to need to fundamentally change the, the energy mix. Uh, I think you have many, many parts of the world that are using very little energy today, and they understandably want to 
have more prosperity. They want to be wealthier. They want to have cars and refrigerators and air conditioners and even a fraction of the standard of living that, that many of us take for granted. All of that requires huge amounts of energy use. Uh, it is also the case that an electri electrified economy, uh, electricity uses energy more efficiently than, than hydrocarbons in terms of lost waste heat and other things. So electrifying some sorts, parts of the economy uh, provides significant efficiency benefits. But energy use is going to continue to grow, although we can use energy more efficiently. And we're going to need to, the fact that 80% of the global economy, global energy use comes from fossil fuels, and that 80% number really hasn't changed over the last three decades. It's been about 80% for the last three decades, even though the total amount of energy has increased, the pie has gotten bigger. So we need to uh, limit the extent to which the pie continues to grow. Um, but fundamentally, we're not going to get where we need to be unless we are able to meet most of that energy with zero carbon sources of energy or otherwise capture or remove the emissions. And, and that technology is going to play some role too in how we get to net zero or get anywhere close to it. So, so to that point, um, Jason, you wrote recently in an article in Foreign Policy, I'm quoting you here, there is no ethical way around energy use in the developing world rising sharply for many years to come. Um, and one of the words that's striking that is ethical, um, but also it speaks to your point that this is, I mean, this is part of the energy reality that we have to face, that in many parts of the world, energy use is going to increase dramatically, not just slowly, but rapidly in, in the next few decades. And many of the approaches that are being advocated in the developed world for dealing with the challenge of climate change simply won't apply. I mean, reliance on renewables, for instance. What is the way around that? I mean, there's a lot of talk at COP26 about the obligations of the developed world to the developing world, and there are big figures being thrown around here. Do you think there is enough recognition of the energy reality that we are talking about many parts of the world having to have very significant increases in energy use over the period when we are trying to deal with this problem? Um, yes. I mean, again, I, I think in, in many parts of the developed world, we are quite uh, wasteful with how we use energy, and that needs to change, and it should change. But we're pretty far along the curve in terms of how developed and advanced many of these economies are. So I'm the, when I use the, the, the quote you just mentioned, I was talking about the parts of the world that either have no energy access at all today, which is still 800 million people around the world, and often when you see universal energy access modeled, what, how much energy will it take to achieve universal energy access, the amount of energy being talked about is equivalent to charging your cell phones or turning on some light bulbs. That's not the same as energy for some minimum level of prosperity. And again, just think about things like air conditioning or refrigerators or, or cars. The numbers get really big really fast when you talk about the 800 million who have no energy access at all or a few billion who have very, very low uh, standards of living. So energy makes people's lives better. I mean, energy delivers prosperity. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. And we want to help emerging markets, uh, and particularly the continent of Africa, which is responsible for 2% of historic cumulative emissions as compared to nearly 50% for the EU and the US. So these are parts of the world that did not cause this problem, use very little energy today, don't have the resources to cope with the impacts of climate change and will be worst impacted by climate change. The heat waves and the droughts will be most severe in those parts of the world. 
um, and don't have the resources to make the clean energy transition without uh, help and support. Um, when I said a minute ago, you know, the estimates for somewhere around $100 trillion between now and 2050, around two thirds of that is in emerging and developing economies. Most of that is gonna be private capital, not public capital. So what, where does that money come from? That's one of the questions of the next decade. Where does that money come from? And what's the role of policy and what's the role of public finance, whether it's the World Bank or the US Development Finance Corporation to put some degree of capital to work uh, to catalyze more private capital through blended finance mechanisms or, or in other ways. What are the kind of reforms that are going to make it financially, economically viable, commercially viable to invest in clean energy in uh, developing and emerging markets at just an order of magnitude greater scale than we see today? And there are a lot of things that have to happen. There are things the uh, international community can do. Um, and there are things that those local governments will have to do as well to have more predictable and stable investment regimes for, for capital to, to address issues of corruption or political instability. But remember, we're, we're sort of the big issue of the day here in Glasgow is whether the rich countries can meet, can fulfill their obligation, their, their promise is a better word, that they made in 2009 in Copenhagen to provide $100 billion a year in climate finance for poorer countries. And we're not there yet. And 100 billion is a rounding error compared to the one to two trillion a year that you need to see go into those emerging and developing economies to get on a pathway for net zero by 2050. So we have a lot more work to do. Can I just ask you, um, Jason, how you see the, the politics of this in regard to China? Because obviously, if you go back to the, the 90s, uh, Kyoto, that China, the Chinese leadership was making an argument about fairness in relation to emissions and industrial um, development. But now China is obviously in a, in a very different position to the, the countries that you talked about and is pretty committed, albeit in a, I would say, quite complicated um, way, but still pretty committed to, to trying to um, decarbonize its future uh, industrial development in its high-tech manufacturing development and China's moved away from being willing to support to finance coal-fired power stations in um, in developing countries is there a sense in which sort of China might actually not be quite as supportive to this group of countries as we might have um, expected because China's embarked upon its own quite singular way of dealing with the multiple energy problems that it faces well, there's, uh, I think, a lot in the question you just asked. And so China, related to energy, but more broadly, of course, has a Belt and Road Initiative with significant economic and geopolitical motivations behind it to expand the tentacles of uh, China in much of the developing and emerging world for a variety of reasons, uh, economic and, and geopolitical, I think. Energy in the past and still today is a major component of that, investing in energy infrastructure and ports and roads and bridges and related supporting infrastructure you need to expand uh, energy. They're still doing that today um, in refining and oil and gas. You, you, you note that they did make a very significant commitment, although the details are still a little more scant than I would like to see, that they would not finance coal projects um, outside China anymore. They're still uh, consuming half the world's coal within China and, 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 and investing and, and building new, new coal capacity. Uh, and China, you know, of course, she did not show up here at Glasgow at all. And uh, they did relatively little to 
increase their ambition, their, their 2030 target relative to where it was before. So there's no solution to climate change that does not involve the world's biggest emitter, China. They have an outsized role to play. They are doing a lot to expand clean energy, but the economy is so big, the emissions are so large that they have to do a lot more. And it, it raises this interesting question of how we get there. So you would, you know, historically, we've thought about climate change as this fundamental uh, free rider problem, tragedy of the commons problem. It doesn't matter where a ton of CO2 comes from. They all contribute equally to the problem. So um, you, ha- you have to have global cooperation. Otherwise, some country is going to sit back and say, well, you know, we're only 10, 15% of the of emissions. We'll let everyone else do all the work. And then we'll benefit from the fact that climate change is not as bad as it otherwise would be. But if everybody does that, no one will do anything. So that's why we need cooperation. Cooperation is faltering. I mean, there was a hope that you could segment climate change as an area of bilateral cooperation between the US and China in the context of an otherwise very fraught intense relationship, right? The US and China over human rights or Hong Kong or Taiwan or intellectual property, a range of other issues. It is um, at, at a low point for the last several decades. And there was a hope that you could say, well, let's just put climate change off to the side and work on that together. And that's proven harder than I think um, John Kerry and the U.S. hoped it would be. Uh, The Chinese do link a lot of these things. If it continues to prove hard to cooperate, uh, how do you work together? Or maybe you see increasing calls for industrial policy, for de-risking the supply chain, for onshoring the manufacturing of solar uh, components or the processing of critical minerals and rare earth uh, elements for security reasons. But maybe there's a degree to which if you think about the energy transition as a a competitiveness opportunity, you start to see uh, countries that have the resources say, well, we're going to invest in solar, we're going to invest in electric vehicles or early stage technology like hydrogen or or, or decarbonizing cement and steel, because we know those are going to be big growth markets for the next 10, 20 years. And we want those industries to be developed here at home. We want those jobs here at home. We want the economic uh, activity here at home. And there's a it's going to be an interesting dynamic to see to what extent cooperation, but also to what extent economic competition can be the driver of climate action in the years to come. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. How should we understand the stories that we're hearing about coal and China at the moment? The contrast between what China's willing to finance overseas and the, it seems like, increasing dependency on coal domestically. And one reads stories about the extent to which outsiders don't appreciate the the role that coal has played in the history of the Chinese Communist Party. It's It's kind of the base, particularly in northern China. And there's a real wariness about alienating segments of the population. And the idea that somehow because it's not a democratic regime, the Chinese system is better able to make sudden shifts. The story of coal seems to give the lie to that, 
But is this, should we think of this as a kind of legacy thing? This is part of the challenge of the energy transition? Or is this a harbinger, do you think, of what's to come? That some of the domestic problems in the United States, in China, with even the level of shift that's required at the moment before we get to the really big scale of ambition, this is a harbinger of the politics to come, that actually we're beginning to see the politics of the energy transition in in some of the bleaker messages that are coming out of Glasgow. Yeah, I think that's right. I think maybe I'll, I'll make three three points about that. Sure. One is it's a reminder of, you know, China has not pivoted away from coal yet. It's a reminder of how big the numbers are and how big the challenge is. And by that, I mean, if you you'll often see headlines in the newspaper uh, about you know how staggering the growth in solar uh, has been in China, how electric vehicle sales are burgeoning, how, um, how how cheap renewables are, and that's true. And it's also true that coal use is continuing uh, to to grow or at least not fall, just kind of stay stay level. It was growing very quickly and then it sort of plateaued for a few years. Um, and that's just because the economy is so big. And so when you take a small number and grow it at a big annual growth rate, it's still a small number a few years down the road. It takes a while for it to become a big number. And that's what we've seen with the growth in renewable energy. So the scale of this transition, how big the, the numbers are to grow an economy like China's as fast as it was growing, obviously the growth rates have slowed somewhat, just requires a huge amount of energy. And even with dramatic growth rates in clean energy, it was hard to, to meet all of that growth. Uh, you're making an important point too, which is something that's come up not just in China, but we, you know, especially with the energy crisis that's playing out across Europe now, this tension between environmental ambition and, um, and economic growth. And there's a lot of areas where those two things overlap. You have a lot of economic opportunity in the clean energy transition. But I think the history of China from an environmental standpoint, uh, there's a lot of concern over the environment, not just climate change, but water quality, local air pollution, which has caused either control technologies to be put on coal plants or reductions in coal in some places in the urban areas. But to the extent those policies start to come into perceived or real conflict with energy prices and with economic activity, economic activity does often uh, win out. And I think that's a concern with the pace of ambition in China. And then the other point is just the, you know, where we are today versus where we need to be in the future, the the near term versus the long term and, and the reality today. We are seeing across much of Europe and Asia an energy crisis or, or at least uh, very high energy prices that are causing heavy industry to shut down natural gas intensive producers like aluminum, uh, electricity intensive producers like aluminum or, or fertilizer made a lot with natural gas to shut down activity just because the, there's not enough energy and the energy prices are too high. So China is reopening mines uh, in coal, uh, encouraging more coal production because they're really worried about whether they're going to have enough energy uh, to make it through this winter and then for the next several years. So that's the reality today. And what we also need to be doing is changing that reality. So a few years down the road, we have dramatic growth in clean energy and we have many more opportunities to put clean energy into the grid or to use it in other ways. So we don't have problems uh, like the one that we are going to have this winter, potentially. If it's an unusually cold winter, uh, you're going to see high natural gas prices in the U.S. That's going to be a political concern. Uh, and you will have an even worse situation uh, in many parts of Europe uh, and Asia because natural gas prices are incredibly high and there's uh, real challenges meeting energy demand right now. 
Can I just come in here and, and push on the question of these of high um, prices and switch actually from gas to the oil prices um, issue, which actually, you know, by the standards of what they were in 2007 and 2008, they're not actually um, that high. Um, but clearly the, the tolerance of, of politicians, not least um, Joe Biden himself, for prices in the $80 um, range is um, considerably lower than the tolerance politicians had in 2006, 2007, first part of 2008 for really higher um, prices. And as we know that um, Biden and Antony Blinken have been pushing quite hard, um, while well, Biden's been in, in Glasgow at OPEC plus to increase um, oil production. And obviously you can say, which I think is the administration's position is, look, we need to deal with the present tense problem and the politics of, of gasoline prices back home in the US and uh, rising is just too difficult um, and it's got the potential to cause a, a, a backlash against the um, energy transition. But on the other hand, if people are going to reduce, if, if oil demand for oil is going to fall, then higher oil prices are part of that. So how do we get around this sort of problem that in this sense time um, creates? Because if we always keep saying actually higher oil prices is a political problem, we can't afford these, then how are we ever going to get to the point when we allow higher oil prices to destroy demand for oil? Yeah, you raise a really important point, which is the kind of uh, changes we need to see in order to encourage the transition and encourage reductions in demand, energy efficiency, or substitutes, buying an electric car, say, rather than an internal combustion engine car. And one important tool to do that is price signals, right? That's why and that's the classic economic argument, say, for a carbon tax. But there's a big difference, I think, in what causes those higher energy prices. And there's a, there is an important difference between policy, which A, can be predictable and controlled, and also generates revenue for the government that can be used to do lots of things, whether it's invest in clean energy or offset those higher energy prices to deal with the, the regressive impacts, the fact that low-income people pay a higher share of their uh, income in energy than higher-income people. You can deal with that if you have government revenue versus forcing an energy market crunch. If you say, we're just going to shut down supply, stop producing oil and gas, and cause energy prices to go through the roof, uh, that's economically disruptive. And it, I do worry that it's, it's just not politically sustainable. You're, you're not going to be able to sustain political support for stronger climate policy if people worry that they're not going to be able to afford energy or it's going to take a much bigger bite out of their monthly uh, paychecks. So how you do this does matter in terms of how you get the higher prices that you were saying a minute ago, rightly, we need to see in order to uh, see the incentives that are created to start to move away from hydrocarbons. And there is also, you know, the world we have today and the world we want to have in the future. Those are not yet the same thing. So I don't think it's inconsistent for the Biden administration to say we are concerned about making sure there is reliable and affordable energy supply for U.S. consumers. Uh, and that is a historic, one of the historic uh, elements of energy diplomacy is dialogue between producer and consumer countries. The fact that there is a cartel that has some influence over oil prices uh, in, in OPEC. Uh, and at the same time, the Biden administration is talking about OPEC putting more oil supply in the market to keep energy prices affordable today. And at the same time, it's taking historically unprecedented measures in the US to try to 
advance a cleaner energy economy, go big on electric vehicles, go big on charging infrastructure, so that demand for energy is different in the future and our dependence on oil are, is different in the future. I don't think those two things are inconsistent. But isn't the issue that actually the United States is the world's largest oil producer? And so in this sense that there's a kind of, we'll, we'll force other countries to increase their oil production, they get treated as countries that aren't then taking climate change seriously. You know, so yesterday, um, Blinken was was pushing the United Arab Emirates um, to uh, produce more um, oil. But if you look at last year, the United States produced about five times more oil than the United Arab Emirates. So if the problem is that we need to deal with a, a short term problem to, to get us through the next um, few years, why is it not the case that the Biden administration isn't pushing American shale producers to produce more oil? Why is it pushing the problem onto OPEC plus? Well, I don't know what it would mean to push US producers to produce more. I mean, we we know that OPEC, most OPEC governments uh, and, and, and Gulf Arab producers like the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia, there is a government policy that determines how much oil will be produced. That's not the case in the United States. We decide how much, we don't decide. The amount of oil that is produced in the United States is a function of hundreds or thousands of individual company economic decisions each and every day. And so I don't know what it would mean for Biden to tell the US oil and gas producers to produce more. They're gonna produce based on what their shareholders think makes the most sense. Right now, for example, US oil production is not growing nearly as fast at these oil prices as you would have seen it grow a few years ago. And that's because a few years ago, you had lots of capital that was going in in the form of debt to the oil and gas sector in the Permian Basin to grow production as much as possible. Shareholders wanted to see production growth. Now they wanna see profitability and dividends. That's changing the trajectory for US oil and gas production. Maybe that'll stay the same next year, maybe it won't, we'll see. But uh, you know, the US government just has much less control over how much oil and gas the United States produces than some of those other countries you mentioned have over how much oil and gas they produce. Just listening to the tenor of what you say and the need to be realistic and just how challenging this is going to be. So tell me if I've got this wrong, but I'm sort of taking away two messages, one of which is that um, we need to maybe it's educate people more about the energy side of the equation. The focus is often on the language of climate and the science indeed of climate. But most of the most important questions are about energy. And we don't hear so much about that. And so maybe there is a challenge here to change the language, to get a realism about energy alongside all of this soaring climate ambition. But the other thing I feel like I'm hearing is that there is a case that can be made perhaps to the private sector as well as to government, which is there is an opportunity now because the politics of this is going to get harder. If that gap widens, it's going to be less predictable. So if shareholders and investors want a predictable future in which they can plan for returns, to get people to recognize that there is a serious risk in the short to medium term, not just in the long term, that the politics of this becomes chaotic. Because quite a lot of what you've said has suggested to me at least the possibility of quite a chaotic political future. If you can get people to focus on that now, there is a sort of preemptive case, not to preempt climate change, but to preempt political disruption. And if the goal, perhaps the shared goal of everyone here is a kind of predictability that we want to have a political as well as an energy infrastructure where where it is possible to plan for the medium term 
we have to act now. Is that, I mean, I'm sort of taking that as one of the positive messages coming out of the challenge, that you can push that case. If you don't want to be caught by really surprising political outcomes, we have to do something now. I think that's right. And I think there are two things uh, in, in, in what you just said. So the first is about the role of education. And so there's, to your point about both climate education and energy education. Uh, there's a reason I have two job titles, and one of them is that I direct something called the Center on Global Energy Policy, which tries to inform a better dialogue about our energy policy and the reality of the energy system. And the other is co-founding dean of the Columbia Climate School, and Columbia has made a historic commitment to tackle the climate challenge and educate the next generation uh, of leaders. We need, um, certainly the energy sector needs to understand climate change and the risks climate change presents much better than they do today. But I also think the climate community needs to understand the energy system sometimes better than they do and, and, and how the math works and what the numbers look like and the developing and emerging markets we talked about. The fact that you know only 20, 25% of oil is used in cars and electric vehicles are great, but we have a lot more work to do in trucks and petrochemicals and ships and planes. So we need education on both fronts, climate and energy, completely agree. And then the other point you raised is what we need to do in a positive fashion to build that predictability in. And, and that's one of the things I spend a lot of time thinking about, especially right now, and informed by various geopolitical events, but also the energy uh, challenges, energy market issues we're seeing play out across Europe and Asia. How do we de-risk the energy transition economically and geopolitically? Uh, because right it's who would think that you could take this share of the global economy and turn it on its head almost overnight which in you know two or three decades by the standpoint of energy transitions is really fast um and have that be smooth and predictable and linear it's not it's going to be really unexpected and disruptive we're going to have cost curves that play out differently than we thought, innovations in some technologies, but not others. We're going to have wild swings in policy. Look at the U.S. going from Obama to Trump to Biden. We're going to have policy all over the world move in fits and starts. And so it is going to be messy to have the energy transition unfold. And to the extent it is messy, and as I said a little bit ago, if you see affordability or reliability of energy adversely impacted, it's going to slow the pace of ambition. If you see geopolitical risk come into this, because you know we start to develop, I'm just making this up, we start to develop a global hydrogen economy. And in the early days, there's a few countries like Chile or Saudi Arabia that produce green hydrogen and ammonia. And there's a few countries like Japan that buy it. If there's a disruption in supply because there's a problem in, I don't know, you know, some the Strait of Hormuz or somewhere else that we used to worry about oil, but now we worry about it for something else, you're immediately going to see a pullback where we say, well, we can't rely on that fuel because it's not secure enough. So we need to think about the geopolitical risks, the economic risks, the price volatility and build First, don't dismantle the existing mechanisms we have to deal with those, like selling off the strategic petroleum reserve in the U.S. doesn't make a lot of sense. We may need more rather than fewer tools to deal with price volatility in the years to come. And then think about additional measures that we can take uh, to have capacity markets for electricity, maybe to say we're not exactly sure how quickly we can retire the fossil fuel legacy infrastructure. We know we're going to use it a lot less, but maybe we want to make sure it's there just in case we need it for bits and pieces until we really understand where this energy transition is going. And then you need to develop the policies, the, the tariffs, the pricing structures, the regulations that incentivize those uh, facilities to be there. 
So these are things we're not thinking enough about yet because we tend to talk about what net zero 2050 looks like and the International Energy Agency and others model it. And these models are great, but they're stylized techno-economic models. They're not how the real world works. The real world's going to be much messier. Can I just come in there on the, the geopolitics, um, Jason? Um, and it was, it was actually something I was going to um, ask you back a little bit earlier in the, the conversation um, when you when you brought up um, John Kerry uh, and the, the his effective disappointment that hasn't been able to compartmentalize climate as an area for cooperation between the United States and um, China. And one of the things that I thought from the beginning when I realized that that was what he was trying to do is this, why would anybody, particularly somebody as experienced in international politics as John Kerry, think that you could decouple climate and energy policy from geopolitics? Isn't everything about this you know, geopolitical in the sense that who emerges as the most economically competitive country out of the energy transition, that that will have profound geopolitical consequences and we shouldn't actually expect um, that in in one sector it will be the same country as in another sector, and that it is going to have consequences for military power um, too. And that's why I think that the the issue of nuclear power and nuclear powered navies is going to be a pretty significant part of this energy transition as much as anything else that's going on. Yeah, it's something I've thought a lot about, uh, and I'm uh, writing a book about actually, which is the geopolitics of the energy transition. And I think it, there's a sort of conventional wisdom that, you know, petrostates will collapse and China will rise because China can make stuff cheaply like solar and batteries. Um, a lot of the traditional energy geopolitical risks we've worried about are related to oil and gas. It's, you know, since the Arab oil embargo, we're concerned about how much oil we're importing from the Middle East or if you're in Europe, how much natural gas you're importing from, from Russia. Um, and it is true that a transition away from oil and gas will mitigate those risks but it will create new ones also. And we need to think about them and develop tools to manage them. A decarbonized electric energy system is most likely gonna be more electrified. You're gonna have some things like cars and heat in your home that maybe are electrified in ways that have not been the case in the past. Electricity is inherently more local, but the components, the, the electric heat pumps, the solar panels, the batteries, um, you know, China makes most of those today. Those don't create the same energy security risks as the fuel that the daily economy depends on. If, if, if there was a disruption to oil or imports into a certain country, um, you would see an immediate impact on people's ability to get around or, 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 or in 2006 and 2009, when Russia had a pricing dispute with Ukraine and cut off gas supply into Eastern Europe, you know, people's lives were at risk because they couldn't heat their homes in the winter. It's not the same thing if you have a disruption in the supply chain for solar panels or for batteries, because those are, inputs to generate energy, it might mean that the, there's a backlog in the purchase of electric vehicles, that the price goes up in the same way computer chips coming out of the pandemic are a problem today for the auto industry. So the kind of risks you face will be different, but they are potentially still significant. We're going to see dramatic growth in uh, dependence on certain critical minerals like cobalt and lithium and, uh, and others. Uh, those are located in certain countries, much more concentrated than, than oil and gas today. Uh, most of the refining and processing of those rare earth and critical rare earth elements of critical minerals are in China. So the, there's, a, there's a supply chain concern uh, there as well. Uh, and then you mentioned nuclear, which is a really important issue. We are going to need more zero carbon nuclear energy in the grid around the world. 
And right now, China and Russia are building most of the world's nuclear power plants and therefore put their workers in those plants, uh, set the rules for how those plants operate, uh, develop the norms of non-proliferation that accompany how we deploy more nuclear energy around the world. I think that is a national security uh, risk that uh, the U.S. And, and other countries should be paying attention to and building up their own nuclear capacity uh, in response, as, as well as because we're going to need more nuclear energy and companies and engineers to, to, put, it, to put it in place. I'm aware we need to let you get back to what you're in Glasgow to do. So can I ask you one last question, um, which picks up on a few things that we've talked about. If you were, as I'm sure you do, so you're writing a book about geopolitical risk and, and the energy transition. I'm sure you talk to a lot of um, executives in the fossil fuel industry. You talk to a lot of investors. And if the idea is to, alongside all of the climate ambition, to get them to focus on the reality and the reality of the risks, what do you say to them they should be most afraid of? What is the thing that, in your experience, has the greatest capacity to jolt expectations that we can carry on as we are? Is it is it the climate science? Is it the possibility of massive geopolitical disruption? Is it just the size of the economic numbers? What scares people most in that world? I think it is the potential tipping points in social mobilization and public pressure to act more mm -hmm. quickly on climate change. What we talked about earlier in this conversation, how does the ambition reality gap reach a breaking point? And we said, there's two ways that could go. One is people say, this is harder than we thought. I'm really worried about my heating bills at the end of the month. So we're just going to have to move more slowly uh, and maybe not hit 1.5, but hit something else. But we are going to increasingly see each and every day severe impacts of climate change that we are, of course, already seeing with droughts and heat waves and wildfires and storms and floods. And people are seeing each and every day in their lives how climate change is getting worse and impacting them, not just polar bears or people in, in faraway countries. And you really do see, I mean, I see this every day with my students, just a completely different attitude and real concern about their future, uh, understandably, from younger people, younger demographics. If that it reaches a tipping point in the same way 50 years ago, a little more, 19, 1970, uh, we had the first Earth Day in the United States. One out of every 10 Americans came into the streets across Republican and Democrat, urban and suburban. They said, we just can't live like this anymore. We can't have air we can't breathe and smog and water we can't drink and lakes our kids can't swim in. You have to, this has to stop. And as a result, you have these seminal laws uh, that the Nixon administration created, uh, not a great environmental champion, President Nixon, Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, the Environmental Protection Agency, all of these environmental laws in response to public pressure that it had to stop. Um, the famous American economist Herbert Stein once said, if something cannot go on forever, it will stop. It's kind of obvious, but that's kind of how I feel about climate change. And the question is when, when do we reach that point? And if you're a major fossil fuel producer, I think that's what you should be worried about. And that's what you should be thinking about. What, how, what's your company gonna look like? And how is it gonna thrive and be profitable when we reach that point. And does it scare them? Uh, I think it scares some, and they're in a different place in terms of how they think about it. But at the same time, they are also, understandably, um, while they're worried about that, they're also looking at the world today. And the world today is oil use is going up every year, not down. Gas use is going up every year, not down. And for every company like BP that decides it's gonna sell a bunch of its oil and gas assets and let its oil production fall, there's a private equity firm or a private company or a state-owned company like Saudi Aramco or Adnoc in the United Arab Emirates. They're spending billions and billions of dollars to increase 
their oil production capability in the years to come. Because I think they see a world, rightly or wrongly, uh, that a lot of social pressure is going to cause some companies to cut back from how much oil and gas they produce, but the world demand for oil and gas is not going to change nearly as fast as people think. And they're trying to, many companies are trying to deal with that, that, that tension, uh, those two realities right now, the world as it is today and the world that's going to come if we don't deal with climate change. If you'd like to hear more from Jason on a whole range of questions to do with climate and energy, he has his own podcast. It's the Columbia Energy Exchange. He's also a regular columnist in foreign policy, and you can find him there. Coming up on Talking Politics, we're going to be talking about some of the themes we touched on today, including China, but in this case, China and Hong Kong. And also, we're going to be doing a live event at the Bristol Economics Festival discussing the politics of supply chains and inflation. Do join us for all of that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.